Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. The guest that we have coming up is out of this world. And that is a pun intended loaded statement. What a delight to speak with this human being. But before we get to that, Tim, it would be a delight to know how you're doing. Is your mood outside of the stratosphere? <laughs> yes, yes. My mood is a meteor of, uh, of happiness. Very excited to introduce Professor Avi Loeb. He is a professor at Harvard University. Pak the Ka in uh, Havid Yad, Lance. Avi Loeb is uh, clearly one of the uh, most impressive guests we've ever had on these airwaves. And we're talking about extraterrestrials today with him. He wrote a book called Extraterrestrial that is excellent. I listened to it on Audible. He's got a new book that's coming out on August 29th, 2023. It's called Interstellar. I can't wait to hear this one as well. And we do talk about his books a little bit. And we do talk about his education and what he's been doing at Harvard. But this gentleman came onto our radar because of these findings that happened in Papua New Guinea. Apparently, he has found material that is derived from something that is extraterrestrial. Is that an accurate way to put this without giving too much away or without getting too in the weeds? Yeah, it's apparently an artifact that came from outside of the solar system. And it was, I believe, the first ever meteor that came from out of the solar system to enter ours. As far as it being extraterrestrials or aliens, you'd have to ask Avi. That's a little above my pay grade. It's definitely interesting in nature and not really behaving like they would have expected it to. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Avi does a really great job communicating all of this to you and I. Like you said, this is out of our pay grade. As interesting and fascinating as it is, and as geeky as we get with this conversation, it does take a little bit of boiling down for us to understand like what it is exactly he's talking about. And he does a great job with it. And I feel like that's going to communicate really well to the listeners. And I'm really curious to hear what people think about this, whether you're on one side of the fence or the other. Is this or isn't this something that he claims it to be? I mean, I guess that's up for ultimately science to determine down the road. But he did... <laughs> dragged the seafloor and came up with something that's a material that is currently being identified. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see some of his peers being a little skeptical, but I think he makes a lot of great points in his book, Extraterrestrial, that he's really just asking for open-mindedness. And I don't think he's stepping beyond what he should be doing, in my opinion. I'm no scientist, but maybe there's some professional jealousy associated here too. I'm not sure. Or, you know, maybe maybe he's on the wrong track. I don't know but he's here to tell us all about it. And Tim, if in some galaxy far, far away, there's some being that is listening to this and they just don't understand what the sponsors are, let alone how to use a promo code, and they don't want to hear an episode with that, where could they go? Well, I can understand why they wouldn't. They can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm to sign up for Crawlspace Premium. It's also available on Apple Podcasts. You get early releases, ad-free episodes, and our weekly bonus show. And you also get that bundled with one of our other shows called Missing and another one of our shows called Dark Valley. Avi's book Interstellar will be out on August 29th, and you can check out all of the books that Avi has written on websites like goodreads.com, and you can pick up any one of his books at your local bookstore or online, wherever you choose to get books. And Tim, while people are online, after they've given us a good rating and review, where can they go to see us on social media? Oh, well, listeners can please follow us on social media at Crawl Space Podcast or Crawl Space Pod. And before we get to this conversation, we just want to remind our listeners that the nonprofit that Tim and I are on the board 
board of is hosting its first annual 5K Run for the Missing. This is going to be on Sunday, October 8th at 11 a.m. in a little town just north of Boston, Massachusetts. For information on the race, to register, or to just make a donation for the nonprofit, you can go to piftm.org slash run, or you could go to runsignup.com and search Run for the Missing. And the registration fee goes directly to the nonprofit Private Investigations for the Missing. You will also receive a commemorative t-shirt with your registration and you'll be entered into a raffle and eligible to receive one of the many amazing raffle prizes. And these links will also be in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We're going to cut quick to commercial here and we'll be right back with Professor Avi Loeb. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Welcome to the podcast. Avi Loeb, how are you today? Doing great. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us. We have honestly been talking about this conversation with you since before we actually scheduled it. We read this article and Tim and I have always been searching for a guest who could speak to this topic on such a level that was beyond speculation, actual research was done, and we were like giddy. This is one of the uh, most anticipated conversations that we have had on this show. So thank you for joining us. And we were speaking about your suit. You said that you wore a suit out of respect for us, and that's very, very kind of you. Well, thank you. Um, It's a great pleasure to join you. If I were to join you at uh, 5 a.m. in the morning, when I wake up for my morning jog, I would wear a T-shirt. And that's what I actually wore on the ship uh, on the Pacific Ocean before I got here a couple of weeks ago. Oh, I can't wait to hear all about it. But first, I just want to to hear a little bit about your background. Who are you and and, and what do you do? What I have been doing is uh, studying the universe for several decades, uh, figuring it out. And the way I approach it is, um, you know, like a kid, there is so much we don't know that we should not pretend uh, that we know too much. In fact, um, collecting evidence is the best approach and uh, being guided by whatever nature educates us. It's It's a learning experience. So... Uh, I was uh, initially interested in the first light in the universe, the first stars, the first galaxies. That was several decades ago. The subject was not popular. Now it became popular because of the Webb telescope that allows us to see those first stars. And, you know, it's the scientific version of the story of Genesis. And then uh, after that, I worked on uh, primarily black holes. I was the founding director of the Black Hole Initiative at Harvard. And, you know, black holes are very extreme uh, space-time structures, and if you don't like someone, you can send them to a black hole. They will never come back. Uh, so it's the ultimate prison. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, if you live near a black hole, you can enjoy the environment in the sense that you can, for example, uh, produce clean energy by throwing your trash towards the black hole because it heats up uh, as it gets closer and radiates away a lot of energy. So that's a good way of uh, enjoying clean energy. 
you know, by now we have images of black holes and they were obtained at the conference room of the black hole initiative that I founded. And uh, most recently, I was intrigued by some objects that came close to Earth uh, because they came from outside the solar system. And, you know, that's a new frontier. Before the last decade, we never found, we never saw uh, an object that came from outside the solar system. And it's another way of probing what is going out there in the in our cosmic neighborhood. Just like going out to your backyard, you know, we're used to seeing rocks that are familiar, but every now and then we see a tennis ball that was thrown by a neighbor or some object that came from the street, which tells us what lies beyond our backyard. So this is something that fascinated me already a decade and a half ago, but I calculated that the survey telescope uh, that will uh, come to fruition over the past decade would not be able to detect any such uh, rocks if the census of rocks we have in the solar system is representative, you know, if, if that's the same, uh, or roughly the same around other stars. But lo and behold, there was one discovered, and back in 2017, we can talk about the details, didn't look like an asteroid or a comet that we're familiar with, and intrigued me because uh, it could have been uh, technological in origin. And then there was a, a second one that we discovered with my student, which was a meteor that collided with Earth came from outside the solar system, and we can talk more about that. Yeah, I would love to. How do you know that they are from outside the solar system? You know, gravity uh, can bind objects. For example, if you throw a stone up, it will come back, right, uh, down. Uh, but if you throw it uh, hard enough with high enough speed, it will escape the gravitational pull of the Earth. And the same holds for any object in the solar system. If it moves too fast, then it will not be bound to the sun. It will... Uh, run out of the solar system. That's the whole idea of, uh, about sending rockets at high enough speed so that they escape from the gravitational pull of the Earth. And so these objects simply move too fast to be bound to the sun by gravity. The key is just to measure how fast they move and compare it to the escape speed from the solar system. Uh, we were talking before about black holes. There the escape speed is the speed of light, so nothing can escape from there. But uh, from the solar system, the escape speed in the vicinity of Earth is uh, one part in 10,000 of the speed of light. So it's really an object moving faster than that can escape. And um, we saw, the, you know, for the first time in history, uh, humans detected the first objects that move that fast within the solar system. And of course, the assumption that people make is that they must be like the rocks that we are familiar with, but it so happens that they did not look like the rocks. I can explain why, if you wish. So the first one was uh, reported in October 2017, and it was uh, uh, based on the reflection of sunlight from it. It was roughly the size of a football field. It was flat based on the way it uh, was tumbling uh, and reflecting sunlight, and uh, we, did, we couldn't resolve it. We didn't have an image, but it was pushed away from the sun by some uh, mysterious force, uh, even though it was not shedding any mass. There was no evaporation of it uh, visible, uh, the way that comets evaporate, and they have a rocket effect pushing them, but there was no rocket effect possible because we didn't see much evaporation. And so uh, I suggested maybe the object is thin and it's just pushed by reflecting sunlight. And for that, you know, nature doesn't make such objects, so I suggested maybe it's technological, it's some surface layer, or Freeman Dyson, a, a physicist back in the 1960s, about uh, 60 years ago, he came up with the idea that a civilization that is very advanced will build a sphere around the star so that it will collect 
harvest most of the energy of the star and not like us where when people talk about solar energy it's just the energy impacting the earth intercepted by the earth but you can imagine building a mega structure and the only practical way of making it is by having tiles that are hovering above the stars each of them is uh, very thin and being pushed out by reflecting the radiation from the star and that balances gravity that is pulling them in so they basically hover like kites and when the star becomes evolves to become much more luminous you know they will break out from that planetary system and so i thought maybe that could be an origin for this object from 2017 which was given the name omuamua in hawaiian it means scout and it's still very enigmatic because we can't get more data on it we just observed it for a few months but then we discovered that in 2014 there was an object that collided with earth at a very high speed that implies that it came from outside the sources and that one was actually tougher than all the meteors previously cataloged by nasa or over the past decade there were 272 of them and it was the toughest because it maintained its integrity all the way to the lowest level of the atmosphere where the air is very dense So this object had material strength that was very unusual and also was moving very fast outside the solar system it was moving at 60 kilometers per second which is faster than 95% of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun just think about it 60 kilometers per second usually cars move at 60 kilometers per hour so this one was moving per second what a car moves per hour so we decided to check whether it's uh, technological in origin because in this case you know the object basically exploded about uh, 20 kilometers over the pacific ocean 100 kilometers away from papua new guinea and the fragments are still there so we went to collect them and uh, amazingly enough even though the region that we surveyed was 10 kilometers in size we recovered some uh, molten droplets from the surface of the object when it was exposed to the immense heat from the fireball around it. Unbelievable. Okay. So yeah, tell us about this trek that you took to the Pacific Ocean near Papua New Guinea, Galileo project. Can you tell us about how you sort of crewed up and um chartered a boat and got the appropriate equipment? Yeah, first of all, we wanted to make sure that indeed the our inference is correct and the US Space Command submitted a letter to NASA confirming it at the 99.999% that this object is interstellar, that it came from outside the solar system. And by the way, interstellar is also the title of my book that is coming out in August. So I discuss nice. Nice. the implications for humanity and it's coming out next month of the implications of finding a technological object that implies that we have neighbors that you know we are not alone on the street. So um we decided to find out whether this object uh, the the interstellar meteor had technological origin and the best way to find out is to retrieve whatever was left from it. So as soon as the US Space Command confirmed the interstellar origin, they also gave us uh, some data about the location which was a 10 kilometer region, roughly the size of a city, Boston for example, and that's a huge uh, region to survey. So we localized the path of this meteor much better using data from a seismometer in uh, Papua New Guinea in Manus Island uh, that detected the signal the sound wave the blast wave that resulted from the explosion and 
from the time delay, since we know the speed of sound, we could figure out how far away from the seismometer the explosion was. So we pinpointed the path of the meteorite. And then uh, we went there. Um, we designed a sled that had magnets on both sides. And we planned to connect it with a cable to the ship, which was uh, fittingly called Silver Star. And um, we dragged the sled on the bottom of the ocean. It was roughly one meter in size and 200 kilograms in mass. And at first we had a problem getting it to sit on the floor of the ocean because the cable would lift it up and it would behave like a kite. It would float above the surface. But um, eventually we managed to go with the ocean currents. That was a solution that the engineers figured out. We had an exceptional team of professionals, you know, each of them was essential for the success of the mission. And then we started collecting materials. And most of the material is uh, volcanic ash, basically black powder. And I have a vial here that uh, contains some of it from the last run that we had, the last line. You can see it's basically black powder. And uh, after six days of finding this black powder, I wrote an essay asking, where are the spherules? These are the molten droplets from the surface of the object. I wrote about the 40 diary reports from this expedition, and a few million people read them. It went viral, basically, uh, also translated to Spanish. So then what we did was uh, use a mesh and filtered out the black powder, the, this, uh, these tiny particles that come from vol volcanic activity. And uh, we ended up with bigger particles, and put them under a microscope. And uh, lo and behold, we found these beautiful metallic marbles, and they are the molten droplets from this meteor. And uh, on the ship, we found 50 of them. But later on, we found a few hundred more. So um, we are now in the process of trying to figure out the composition of these spherules. What are they made of? Is the material clearly different from solar system material? We can date it. We can look at what elements make it. We can find the radioactive isotopes, isotopes that have a finite life. And you can, by taking the ratios, you can easily tell if the material is different from the solar system material because it came from a very different environment. So uh, we are now engaged in this process and it will take some weeks, but it's very exciting, you know, because it's the first time that humans put their hands on the materials from an object that came from outside the solar system. Yeah, it's really exciting. And I think my first question is, I wasn't, first of all, expecting to see the black powder in the vial, which is really cool. Thank you for showing us that. When you're collecting this, how do you know, like take it back a little bit, you bring this up, how do you know that this black powder in the first place has any significance considering that you're combing the bottom of the ocean floor and there's just a bunch of stuff down there that, you know, you might not be familiar with? How does that not just go into the pile of like probably nothing? Yeah, so the idea was to use magnets. We had magnets on both sides of this sled and most of of the muck or the mud on the ocean floor is not magnetic, so it's not it, it doesn't stick. The typical run was eight hours. So after eight hours of basically skimming the ocean floor, we collected uh, basically the magnets would saturate with mostly black stuff of this nature, but also these ferals. And the key was that they were magnetic. Now we were also prepared in case we don't collect anything to look for non-magnetic particles. We had a sluicing device, the kind that you use to find gold, uh, you know, in water. Uh, but uh, we, we used it only once because we started finding these ferals and then we realized that's the right path, that's the right approach. You know, we did collect things we didn't expect. Uh, there were wires, there were some uh, bigger chunks of 
metal that we collected, but uh, most of it looks as if it's either geological from this earth or human-made. There was one run where the sled came back painted in white, you know, just like a Jackson Pollock painting, that a splash of white. And my first thought was, oh, maybe this is just a bucket of white paint that the sailor dropped from a ship some decades ago, and it's set on the at the bottom of the ocean, and you know, the sled uh, ran into it. So then I took my finger and, and swiped the paint and put it in a vial and we checked its composition. We had a, an X-ray fluorescence analyzer, something that analyzes the composition. And we realized, oh, actually, this is biological. This paint, it's made of biological stuff. And we checked um, online. And indeed, there is this gooey material that you can run into if you skim the ocean floor. So it's completely natural. So that's an example of things we didn't expect. You know, there were lots of such things because, you know, that's an area where uh, ships pass by and, you know, over many decades things accumulate. But what was special about the spherules that we found is that they were the right size, several tenths of millimeter in size, so less than a millimeter. And uh, moreover, they looked like molten metal, uh, basically mainly iron, but uh, other elements embedded. So that convinced us they originated from a very powerful explosion where the temperatures were very high, the iron was molten. We actually, since then, we observed them with scanning electron microscope and, and we can see that this is a droplet that was heated to extreme temperatures. And what we saw is when you cut it, very often what you see inside is a sphere inside a sphere. So sort of like uh, Russian dolls, except what happened here was uh, at first the tiny droplets, just a few hundred atoms in length, solidified, and then they were engulfed with molten iron that glued them together. And then there was another bigger droplet that engulfed that, those intermediate ones. And so you see spheres inside spheres, which is quite amazing. I mean, they look like an egg embedded in some supporting uh, soft structure. and it's basically the eggs are those tiny spheres that solidified first and then they were surrounded by molten material. So clearly collisions of droplets took place in this explosion. And uh, we also saw some examples of two spheres that didn't have time to circularize, to become spherical. So they ended up in a lopsided uh, merger. Uh, so all kinds of interesting uh, morphologies, but altogether we really hope to figure out the composition to tell whether it's different from the solar system and also whether it looks artificial. You just imagine melting semiconductors or a computer screen. You will get elements that are very rare in nature, but are much higher concentration in, in those droplets. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Please pardon the stupid question if this is a stupid question, but I hope you're one of those uh, folks who are, there are no stupid questions kind of person. How are these objects magnetic? Well, because they contain a high fraction of iron. So iron is a magnetic uh, substance. In fact, it's well known from iron meteorites uh, that come from the solar system that the way to find them is to look for these spherules with magnets. Except this one came from outside the solar system. And uh, what we are checking is uh, whether its composition is the same or different from solar system meteorites. And it looks different. Preliminary analysis show that it looks different. Uh, I mean, the constituents are different, but... We 
we are still, you know, at the early stage of the analysis. So we need to do a more comprehensive analysis of all the spherules we have to get a good census of what makes the interstellar meteor uh, spherules different from regular ones. And then, of course, it will, could be also a new method to realize whether, you know, past meteorites that were collected in uh, museums or private collections, whether any of them could be interstellar, because if we understand what the difference is, we can now tell the difference between interstellar and solar system meteorites. But the other thing I wanted to emphasize is astronomy was uh, using telescopes in the past to find what lies outside the solar system. Now we're using microscopes. It's a completely different method and it opens a new window. You know, it's finding objects that visit your backyard is very different from just looking through your window at what you can see. What types of precautions do you take when you're looking at these objects that you're very unfamiliar with? Because you were talking about how it looks like on the inside and it looks like there's a sphere on top of a sphere. Is there any discussion of like what's going to happen if something like moves in there or you know what I mean? Like what do you wear? What precautions do you take just in case? Well, uh, okay. So first these objects, these tiny metallic marbles were on the ocean floor for almost a decade. In a way, we don't need to worry too much. We first checked if there is any radioactive isotopes in them that pose a risk, you know, using a Geiger counter or we even, uh, left them for many days uh, near what is called a gamma ray detector, and we didn't detect anything. So it was clear that there is no radioactivity of that could pose a risk. These are just molten droplets from the surface of this object. I think the fundamental question is whether that object was a rock or an artificial object. And it's obviously much easier if we were to find a big piece, we could tell the difference between a rock and a technological gadget because a gadget would have maybe a label saying made on some exoplanet or it may have a button that one can press. And I asked students in my class at Harvard in the last class of the spring semester whether, you know, if we find a gadget, should we press a button? Half of the class said no way because we are worried about the consequences. And the other half said, yes, of course, uh, we are very curious to know what would happen. And then one of the students asked me, what would I do? And I said, I will bring it to a laboratory first before I engage with it. I would like to examine what it's made of. You know, we didn't get to that phase where we pick up big pieces because first we wanted to find these ferals, the tiny ones, and they guide us uh, just like rose petals in a romantic uh, pursuit of a partner, you know, like you're trying to find the bigger part. Um, we could go there again uh, on a future expedition and look for big pieces. And that obviously would be much more exciting if you find it. So what do you think these objects are? Yeah, so these are just the molten droplets. When the object was exposed, the amount of heat generated by the friction of the object with the atmosphere was equivalent to a few percent of the energy output of the Hiroshima atomic bomb. And it was deposited in just 500 kilograms of material. Okay, so just imagine how corrosive this heat can be. I mean, it, basically, it, it would melt down any solid surface. The key question of, is whether there was anything that survived the impact. And that could be the case if the object was bigger than half a meter. If it all evaporated into dust, 
then it should have been at least a half a meter in size. Just think about our probes, the ones that we sent, like Voyager 1, Voyager 2, Pioneer 10, Pioneer 11, or New Horizons. We send them to interstellar space. They will exit the solar system, the outskirts of this solar system that is called the Oort cloud in about 10,000 years. And uh, they will not be functional at that point. They will become space trash. And it's possible that most of the technological objects in interstellar space are just trash, just like plastics in the oceans. You know, they keep accumulating over time. They are bound by gravity to the Milky Way, just like plastics accumulate in the oceans. But every now and then, you can imagine a Voyager-like probe that is not functional anymore colliding with a planet. And then it would appear like a meteor. And uh, only if there is a curious scientist on that planet will the civilization over there know that it was uh, something different than a rock. And so that's what we are after. We're trying to figure out whether any of these interstellar objects that look weird because they have properties different than the asteroids or the comets that we had seen before. They have a different shape. They are uh, not evaporating. You don't see cometary tail, yet they are being pushed or they have strange kinematics. Or they move really fast and they have material strength higher than rocks. You know, So these are suggestions that maybe nature is trying to educate us, to teach us something new that is not represented by what we know already. Two-part question here. How often do objects collide into the Earth? And is there some sort of, I guess, place on Earth where more of them land than other places? So for the first question, solar system rocks, you know, the the frequency by which they hit the Earth depends mainly on their size. So if you consider a rock the size of a person, uh, almost uh, two meters in size, such a collision happens every year. And it releases as much as the energy output of the Hiroshima atomic bomb. So there is an atomic explosion near Earth every year. We don't hear about it because it happens high in the atmosphere, about 30 to 40 kilometers high. So it doesn't cause much damage, except in rare circumstances. Uh, There was a Chelyabinsk uh, meteorite that uh, was in the news because it damaged some buildings. And also keep in mind that uh, 70% of the Earth is covered with water, the ocean. So even if it were to hit the ocean, I mean, at most you will get a tsunami, but it will not kill people right on the spot. So the chance of it hitting a major city like New York City is very small. The likelihood of it hitting any part of Earth is the same. I mean, it's not exactly the same. The Earth is moving around the sun. So it actually, just like when you run in the rain, your front gets more wet than your back because you're running into droplets of rain. In a similar way, there, there should be more impacts in the direction of the Earth's motion around the sun. But that is not the same region on Earth because the Earth is, you know, spinning. So depending on the time of the day, different regions of Earth are exposed to that preferred direction, you know. And so altogether, it's roughly the same likelihood everywhere. It's just a a roll of a dice as to whether you would get hit. Uh, But there are many more collisions of smaller objects than bigger objects. And objects that are smaller than a meter or even smaller than a tenth of a meter, they get burned up completely. You don't see any anything coming all the way down to the ground. Bigger objects, you know, something of them survives. And of course, huge objects, 10 kilometers in size. Imagine an object as big as Manhattan Island. You know, that's the type of object that killed the dinosaurs, uh, basically eliminated most of 
the species on Earth at the time. That happened 66 million years ago. So compare the, the rates, a, a, an object as big as Manhattan Island hitting you once per 50 to 100 million years, an object as big as a person hitting us once a year. And then, of course, as you go down to smaller objects, every month there is a, an impact or every week or every day, depending on how small it is. Dust particles collide with Earth all the time. So these are objects from the solar system. Now you ask, okay, what about interstellar objects? They are much rarer. The meteor that I mentioned before is once per decade, a once per decade event to have a meter size interstellar meteor. So once a decade, we get such a thing. And that's why it's so rare and difficult to find. And uh, only one in a thousand rocks could be of interstellar origin based on the calculation that we have done. So they are very rare. Interstellar objects are much rarer than, you know, all these Lego pieces that were left over from the construction of the planets. These are the, the asteroids that hit the Earth all the time. They are just leftover material from uh, the process that made up our Earth. You know, our Earth is just a rock that formed out of the mergers of smaller bodies, smaller rocks. And it all started from dust and dust coagulated to make bigger objects and rocks got, got bigger and bigger. And eventually the earth was made this way. And, you know, we pay all of our attention to this rock. And that's a little narrow-minded, you know, to, and try to conquer a piece of land on the surface of this rock as if it's so important. That's what Putin has in mind. But that's ridiculous if you think about the big picture. You know, this, this is just leftover material from the formation of the sun. And there are so many, you know, tens of billions of suns out there that have rocks like the Earth around them, roughly at the same separation. So it's really arrogant for us to think that we are the only ones, that we are, you know, the smartest, that there was never a scientist as smart as Albert Einstein since the Big Bang. Right. So do you think we've been visited in the past or, or are still being visited by uh, beings? It's quite possible. And by visited, you know, it doesn't need to be a functional device. It could be just like I mentioned before, space trash. Uh, something that indicates that it was manufactured by technology, but it may not be functional. Now, then there is this discussion within government that we will have a hearing uh, in, the, in the House next week about uh, some people who claim that the U.S government has information, data, materials from technologies that were identified by the U.S. government that came from outside of this earth, extraterrestrial in origin. This is all based on either eyewitness testimonies or people who heard other people talking about it. And at this point, I'm, I don't know what to make of it because I haven't seen the actual evidence. I'm curious, in your opinion, why is it so challenging for people, especially those that are in like a government position, to accept that this is a possibility? Because when you say something like, what is Earth besides a rock that was part of the sun at one point. I mean, it really makes sense. Like it, on, on this level, it, it makes a lot of sense if you're trying to explain what this is from a, an origin type point of view. Why are we even talking about government getting involved in something like this? Oh, no. So the government is monitoring the sky and monitoring the earth for national security purposes. They want to see if there is any ballistic missile that may be aiming at the U.S. So they find things that they didn't expect. Okay, and they would be the first to notice unusual things because scientists, you know, astronomers are looking far away. They don't care about what happens near Earth. If a bird flies above a telescope, they ignore it. But the, the government needs to figure out if uh, balloons are uh, aimed at spying on the U.S. and if there are drones or airplanes uh, go, uh, going by. Or So they monitor things and every now and then they might see 
something. They would be the first to notice, let's put it that way, an unusual object that came from outside of this earth. And now the question is, the government is not a scientific organization. So, you know, I don't believe in conspiracies. I believe that the government may be incompetent. Okay, that I can believe. And that they, they don't know what to make of it. Okay, so they see something without expecting it. They just cannot figure out what it means. And they push it aside because that's not their day job. Their day job is national security, human-made objects. That's what they care about. But it's exactly what science cares about, things that came from interstellar space that would be of interest. And science is all about sharing the knowledge with all humans. So it shouldn't be the preview of the United States president to know about such things without... It should be shared by all humans because that's the way science is done. And that's what I do. You know, I'm pursuing this subject scientifically. I established the Galileo project that, that I'm leading where we built a, an observatory at Harvard University monitoring the sky and looking for unusual things. We plan to make five copies of this observatory. And we also had this expedition that I mentioned before, and we're trying to look for more interstellar objects passing near Earth in addition to Oumuamua that I mentioned before. So, you know, that's the scientific approach. And the question is whether the government has something that they can't figure out, but for some reason they keep it under wraps, you know, behind the veil of national security. If they do it, it's inappropriate because obviously anything that came from interstellar space does not care about national borders, how we split the land on this rock tiny rock near the sun. Who cares how we split the land? So it's not a national security issue. It's a knowledge that uh, is scientific that we should share with everyone and that you should open up to the scientific inquiry. So if they have something they can't figure out, they should allow scientists to look into it. But on the other hand, they may not have anything, you see, because I haven't seen it yet. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. What is the scientific impact of your findings? And are you getting some pushback uh, from your peers on it? Yeah, so the, even if it turns out that this uh, meteorite is natural in origin, it just came from outside the solar system, but it was produced in some natural environment. Even then, it's a major find because it's the first time that we found such an object. It's the first time that an object of this nature was recognized uh, in 2014, almost a decade ago. This was the first interstellar object identified by the U.S. government, and we recognized that it's interstellar in a scientific paper with my student, uh, Amir Siraj. So um, that's very significant. It's a discovery of a completely new population of objects even if it's natural in origin. And of course, if it's technological in origin, it implies that we have neighbors. We could learn from them. I see it as an opportunity. I don't see it as a threat because it's very likely that if they arrived to our doorstep, they are far more advanced than we are. They arrived here before we arrived to their doorstep. So FedEx delivered the materials to my home. And even though it took them a few days, I realized that the material took maybe billions of years to arrive to Earth to start with. And by now, the senders may be dead if, if it's technological and it doesn't matter, but we will know something new, which will change the future of humanity. That's what I talk about in my book, Interstellar. With respect to the pushback, you know, before I went to the expedition, uh, some colleagues approached me and said, uh, you know, why are you doing this? It's a waste of time, a waste of uh, energy. Uh, you will probably not find anything. And I replied, I said, 
you know, you, I'm not asking you to do anything. I, I'm doing the heavy lifting here and you just sit, sit back and relax. And if I come back with nothing, then you can always say that you didn't expect me to find anything. And I'm not using any funds that were allocated to science to start with. This was funded by a donation that was previously not allocated to science. So, um, when I came back, uh, on, the, on the day that I came back, there was a paper in the Astrophysical Journal arguing that they tried, the authors who are experts in space rocks were trying to fit uh, the US government data on this meteor. And they claimed that using models that they have for stones and even iron meteorites, they couldn't fit the data. And so they said the data must be wrong. The government measured the speed of this object to be much too high, it should be three times smaller, then the object is not from interstellar space and it must be made of stone and not iron. And uh, that was on the day that I held in my hand the materials that we retrieved at the meteor site. We knew from a preliminary analysis on the ship that it was made mostly of iron. So the fact that you know, scientists would argue the government must be wrong when the U.S. Space Command put their reputation on the line, issued a letter just a year ago stating at the 99.999% confidence that this was interstellar. You know, to me, is is really mind-boggling because uh, the fact that we found it, we saw that it's made mostly of iron, confirms my confidence in the U.S. government sensors. You know, I sleep better at night. They know what they're talking about. If they got the speed wrong by a factor of three, you know, they would alert Mexico for a missile that is headed towards Washington, D.C. That's a, a very dangerous uh, situation if they were right. And is your field, like, particularly competitive? In this case, you know, I had um, so many interviews. The essays were so popular. I think, basically, um, the message that I get from this is that we should not let science to be diminished by the negative undertones of social media or academic jealousy. You know, that's, I think, what underlines all of this. It's something new and people uh, who are not involved in the discovery have some, uh, you know, feelings uh, that, you know, they were not involved. Therefore, they try to basically step on any flower that rises above the grass level. At the same time, you know, I see it as, a, as a, an opportunity to... Um, as a teaching moment for the public to recognize how science is really done. It's done by collecting evidence, following the evidence, not having a, an opinion to start with and taking risks, you know, because there was a huge risk in seeking this material. For some reason, some scientists forgot this uh, narrative that defines science as a pursuit of evidence. And instead, what they want to say is, you know, we have a model for stones. And if this model cannot fit the data, the data must be wrong. To me, it sounds like they are still in the stone age of uh, science uh, in some sense. And, you know, how would you ever gain new knowledge if you insist that everything that, that you know from the past must be true in the future? It just doesn't make sense. And we already know that most of the matter in the universe is not found in the solar system. It's called dark matter. And we know that 83% of the matter in the universe is of a substance that you cannot find in the solar system. So that should teach us a sense of humility, of modesty, that, you know, we should be open-minded as to what lies outside the solar system. Is that terrifying to you, the whole idea of dark matter? No, not terrifying at all. I think it's much less significant than finding a neighbor uh, because uh, you can relate to the existence of a neighbor. A neighbor can inspire us to explore interstellar space. If we find the dark matter is made of some particle that we haven't previously recognized, 
It's not a big deal. This particle does not interact with light. That's why we don't see it. There are particles like that uh, that are very weakly interacting. We know about the neutrinos, for example, but the constraints on neutrinos are so tight that they cannot make up the dark matter. The dark matter could also be small black holes, you know, the size of an asteroid, but um, we simply don't know what they are, uh, whether they are black holes, whether they are elementary particles, if they are elementary particles, what kind of particles are they? Uh, the Large Hadron Collider try to smash protons against each other and uh, create dark matter, but uh, without success so far. So we invested billions of dollars in experiment trying to feel, figure out the dark matter over the past decades. It was discovered 90 years ago, and we're still, uh, we have no clue as to what it, what it is. But it, that should teach us a, a modesty that, you know, if these two astronomers were to write a paper about the dark matter, they would argue our models cannot fit the data based on known matter in the solar system. Therefore, the data must be wrong. And this is clearly the wrong approach in the context of dark matter. Is it possible that the material that you discovered is like byproduct of dark matter? Well, we collected material that is uh, made of elements that we know. So it cannot be dark matter because this material interacts with light. Okay, we, we know that. We're talking about mostly iron, but also some other elements from the periodic table. Uh, there is nothing extraordinary about the composition so far, you know, in terms of elements that we never knew about, something like that, uh, which could be an indication of dark matter in principle, but uh, we haven't seen any indication for that. But as I said, we are just at the beginning of the analysis process right now, so, you know, we should wait and see what we find. The population of interstellar objects, if we just extrapolate based on the statistics, it just doesn't carry enough mass to account for the dark matter. But if it is tested and proven, uh, feel free to submit my name with your name to the Nobel <laughs> Committee and we can split the award. I, I'm not going to 30, 70. We can split it. By the way, all these um, awards, you know, just think about finding that we, we have neighbors. You see, these awards will be dwarfed because the impact on the future of humanity would be so huge. It would be similar to, you know, the biblical story of Moses seeing the burning bush that ne never was never consumed. And if I were to live at that time with the instruments we have access to right now, I would use infrared cameras from the Galileo project to tell Moses whether it's an unusual phenomena, you know, because he was very impressed by what he called the miracle to start believing in God. But we could measure the temperature of the bush, the amount of heat generated, the energy, I mean, the, the power generated, and tell Moses whether indeed the, a natural bush would not be able to, to produce so much heat for so long. And science allows you to appreciate unusual phenomena uh, because we have the tools now to know what's natural. Uh, at least what is common. Someone asked me if uh, science necessarily contradicts uh, religion. If you um, want to appreciate reality as a product of some divine entity, you will have a much better sense of what happened, what this product is, if you were to learn it scientifically, study it, because then you learn about all the details. It's just that, like examining a watch, you know, that you appreciate the details, you you have a better sense of the watchmaker, how qualified you, uh, the watchmaker was. So anyway, um, all I'm trying to say is that science is our best uh, invention uh, in terms of figuring out reality. And it's really good for us to adapt to the reality. If we have neighbors, let's find them. 
let's know about them because one way or another, it will affect our future. And it's just like finding that we are not at the center of the universe, that the earth moves around the sun. You know, at the time of Galileo, he was put in house arrest. People ridiculed this notion. And imagine if they were successful and today we would still believe that the earth is at the center and we would shoot these rockets towards Mars, believing that Mars moves around the earth. And we would never get to the destination because it's it's not what reality is. We can see the earth moving around the sun by having a satellite, you know, or a, by shooting a rocket far away. So um, it's really good to know the reality that we all share because irrespective of your prior beliefs, because then you can adapt to it. You can send rockets that will reach Mars. And you did say that you are continuing the testing on the material that you found. Right. So when you have any updates, feel free to let us know. We're definitely curious about that. But before we uh, wrap up, I just want to know if you're working on anything else. Is there any other expeditions that you're planning on going on? Have you had any additional sightings that have uh, kind of sparked your or piqued your interest? Yeah, so uh, it really depends on what we find in the analysis, and this may take a month or, or more, we shall see. As to what we plan next, uh, we might go back to visit the same site, or we may go to another site where a second interstellar meteor uh, was identified, and we might want to see what that one is all about. Uh, and that is closer to Europe. It will not be in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, that will be the plan uh, to decide in between going back and looking for bigger pieces or visiting a new meteorite. Other than that, uh, the Galileo project continues to monitor the sky and we might see unusual things. We shall see. So altogether, I'm, I'm very hopeful since this was a road that was not taken in the past, that if there is any low-hanging fruit, we will be the first to pick it up. So stay tuned. And uh, in my book, uh, Interstellar, coming out next month, I discuss all of this. Cannot wait to read it. Thank you so much, Professor Loeb, for uh, joining us today. I feel like we've learned a lot. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. It was a great pleasure. Mm-hmm.